open up your idol phone or your Satan song, whichever is your preference, and you can go to Matthew chapter 9. And as you make your way to Matthew 9, let me just remind you that the gospel according to Matthew, he's writing to a specific audience. He's writing to a Jewish audience, in fact. And what he's writing to them about is the long-awaited Messiah, the Mashiach, that they had been looking forward to, their king that's going to come in and rule and reign. And, that, and this is actually a prediction, a prophecy from way back in, uh, not, not in just the time of Moses, but all the way back to Eve. If you actually were to look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after the fall, the promise is given to Eve that through uh, her seed would come the Messiah. The word seed is actually capitalized or should be capitalized in your Bible. And we all know that women don't have the seed. That, in fact, comes from the man, which tells you something is taking place for God to say, through your seed, the world is going to be blessed. And so, in fact, what, what Eve is told right there is that from your seed he shall uh, bruise your heel and that uh, the, the head of the serpent shall be crushed. And so we, we certainly know through the life of Jesus we're going to see him with a bruised heel, but yet what happens at, at the end ultimately is the head of the serpent is crushed. So this is something they knew about, they had studied, they had talked about throughout their uh, lives growing up as young Jewish boys and girls, but the thing is, what they chose to do is look at all the prophecies concerning the Messiah um, that they liked. And they ignored the ones that they did not like. Now, I know none of you would do that. You wouldn't just filter through that and only pick out the parts you like and hold on to those. But for these uh, Jewish people, they certainly did that. And the parts they liked were where the Messiah was going to come in and be the king of kings. He was going to come in and whoop some Roman hiney. That's the part they were looking forward to. We are tired of these Romans. We want these guys out of here. And so they were looking for a king to come in and rule and reign. Now they also knew that the time was getting close. From Daniel chapter 9, Daniel actually makes a, a, a prediction, a prophecy of 483 years after the time that the order was given for the walls of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. So a clock started from Nehemiah chapter 2, and if you fast forward 483 years later, what you find is on that day, it was uh, Palm Sunday, 32 AD, the day that Jesus would walk in victoriously to the very day as the King of Kings. And so they knew roughly that this time was coming at the time of Christ. They had a pretty good idea on the calendar. They didn't maybe do the math that I just did for you to get the exact day, but they knew the time was getting near. And so as Matthew is writing this gospel account, he is writing from this perspective, and in chapter 1, what he goes on to do is, is he shows the family tree of Jesus. If you're going to be the king of kings, you have to come from the right lineage. And so he goes through the, the family tree of not only uh, Judah, but also David, as the promise was given to David that his family line would have the Messiah. And Jesus must also fulfill the virgin birth that's predicted in Isaiah 9. And so chapter 2 goes to great lengths for Matthew to lay out the virgin birth of the Christ. Uh, also in chapter 3, we see then the forerunner of Jesus. That would be John the Baptist. Every great king has a herald, someone to go before him, to pave the way, to straighten the path, to make it not bumpy. And that's the spot for John the Baptist to come in and pave the way. But then as John does that, what does he say about Jesus? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Something more is taking place here. He's not just declaring a king. He's declaring the perfect sacrifice. So for Jesus to be that perfect sacrifice, he must be proved to be perfect. And so in chapter 4, we see the testing, the trials of Christ to prove that he was the perfect man, worthy to be the Lamb of God to take away our sins. Then in chapters 5-7, through we have his first teachings. This was the Sermon on the Mount that we covered at length. And what Jesus is sharing with the people is, this is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is what citizenship is going to look like. How people are going to act different and be different. This is what's going to take place. So we go from his forerunner to his testing to his teachings, and now we see his miracles in chapters 8-9. through So now Jesus is proving what all the buzz is about. He's showing what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. He's not just talking about it any longer. He's bringing the kingdom of heaven here on earth. So for Matthew, as he's writing this, he portrays, he lays out these miracles in a very intentional way. Remember, Matthew writes topically, not chronologically. So if you're an ace Bible student and you like to go through the different gospel accounts, you might see the stories are mixed up in the other gospels. It's because they lay them out chronologically, whereas Matthew's laying them out topically. And the topic is, Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so he's going to lay it out in such a way. So where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, is Jesus has just come away from curing or healing this demon-possessed man there on the other side of the Galilee. And so in verse 1, if you want to begin with me, so he got into a boat and he crossed over and he came to his own city. So he's gone from the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee, now back over to Capernaum. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go home. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. So this synoptic count, account, that remember uh, the synoptic Gospels give us a similar view, that's what synoptic means, is recorded in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. What we see in that account is Jesus comes to Capernaum, and he goes to a house, and he begins to teach there. Now, most likely, this is the house of uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Remember, he healed Peter's mother-in-law back in chapter 8 from a sickness. And so he goes to Peter's uh, mother-in-law's house, and he begins to teach. And what happens is, what always happens for Jesus, is the house gets packed. There are so many people in there that for these friends of the paralytic man, they're unable to even get in the door as Jesus is teaching. So unlike uh, you and I can be, uh, often when we see roadblocks to get to Jesus, uh, these guys don't see a roadblock. They just see an opportunity to do a little bit of climbing. They go up on the rooftop of Peter's Peter's mother-in-law's house, and uh, they cut a hole in the roof of the house. 
Now you can imagine this scene at this point in time. You can imagine the distraction as Jesus is laying out this unbelievable teaching that the nation has never heard before. What then takes place is pieces of the roof start to cave in. And little pieces of tile start to fall down through the roof. Remember, they built their roofs out of mud. So mud is falling on people in the middle of this teaching. What an amazing distraction. I mean, here, I'm so worried about distractions, we close the blinds. Because I know if I'm teaching, a little squirrel is going to completely distract you guys. So, so you can imagine for Jesus, he's studied, he's prepared, maybe not as much as I had to, because he's God, and I'm certainly not. But he's gone to all the trouble of preparing a message, and nobody's listening because these crazy people have cut a hole in the roof. And you know they weren't professionals. Like, you know they weren't professional roofers. They weren't professionals at probably lowering people down through a roof. So this is one redneck, jacked-up deal. As they're probably lowering the guy a little bit too far this way, he about rolls off the mat. A little too far that way, he about rolls off the mat. And people are wondering, is he going to fall on us? That's the scene that we have set for us. And yet, Jesus is completely undeterred. He's not shaken up in the least bit. And I find it interesting as he addresses this man, notice with me, he doesn't start off by saying, rise and walk. He doesn't begin with that. Instead, he talks about the man's sins. And so we have to ask a few questions, at least going through this story. At least I have to ask some questions. It begins with this, why did he not? And so I want to give you a few potential answers to why he didn't just say rise and walk right off the bat. Uh, first of all, it, it could have been to eliminate preconceived notions. And what I mean by that is uh, throughout Israel's history, they believed and connected uh, uh, physical maladies to sinfulness. So they often thought if you had some kind of a physical condition, it must be because you've got sin in your life. There must be something going on that God is punishing you for. And if you think back to the book of Job, if you've ever read through that, what you find is an amazing story where Job essentially loses everything. His entire family is taken away from him, all of his wealth, all of his property. Everything is taken away from Job except for uh, his wife. That's a real blessing. She told Job, hey, why don't you just curse God and die? Thank you, honey, for the uplifting words. So uh, she sticks around, and then also Job's three friends who come over to, to give Job encouragement. Hey, sorry for your loss, but uh, his one friend Eliphaz says, Job, so sorry that these horrible things have happened to you, uh, but obviously you've got sin that's not been confessed in your life. Why don't you just confess your sins, and then God will make everything better? Now you can imagine being in Job's spot, and some joker comes over and tells you, hey, you've got a little bit of sin that just needs to be confessed. Thanks a lot, buddy. My family is gone. I have boils all over my body, and everything's been taken away from me. But yet this is the notion that people had, that, that there must be some kind of underlying sin issue that's taken place. If you remember with me the, the young man that was blind that was brought to Jesus, and what did the Pharisees ask? They said, who sinned, him or his parents? So the assumption was, someone here has got a sin problem. And yet what Jesus replied is, neither. But so that through his healing, God can be glorified. You see that these things happen in Job's life so that God could be glorified. 
This man is paralyzed so that as these friends lower him down, God can be glorified. And far too often we get caught up in these preconceived notions that there must be something going on, but we lose sight of the fact that God is going to be glorified through this. Now the second uh, possible reason is so that uh, he, he gets a chance to emphasize proper priorities. In Mark 8.36, he says, What does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? So Jesus is emphasizing proper priorities because he's first wanting to take care of the spiritual issue, which, oh, by the way, is an eternal one, not a temporary one. But so often we come and we want the physical taken care of. We want the temporary thing taken care of, addressed in our lives. But don't you know that so often what God does is He lets the practical take place so that the spiritual can happen. Oftentimes He will allow a healing to happen or some kind of physical success all to make way for the spiritual. And by way of example, think about Jesus feeding the 5,000. The first thing he does is he has them assemble in groups of hundreds. He gets them all put together in groups and laid out. So why? So the disciples can have avenues and aisles of service. He does the practical thing so that they can spiritually take care of that thing next. So that's the the kind of thing that we see from Christ. He lays out the practical so the spiritual can, can happen. Excuse me. Thirdly, This also portrays his power. So as he says, your sins can be forgiven, what he's effectively doing is saying, "Uh, I'm God. (laughs) Only God can heal sins. And the Pharisees and the scribes knew that. So if you ever come across anybody that says, Jesus is never saying he's God in the New Testament, they've never actually read the book. He's saying over and over and over again. Sometimes directly, other times indirectly. In this case, indirectly, he's saying, look, I am God in the flesh. I can forgive sins. Now then, to continue this uh, thought process, I want to just point out what Jesus notices there in verse 2 right off the bat. And, And it isn't this crazy, wild scene of a man being lowered from the bed, but instead... It's his friends. Do you notice that? In verse 2, he says, Then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed when Jesus saw their faith. He didn't notice the faith of the paralyzed man at first. He noticed the faith of his friends. And what they knew is maybe, just maybe, if we can get this man, our friend, to Jesus, he can heal. They had complete confidence that Jesus could do the healing But what they also did is they took a step of faith to get their friend to Jesus. And so the question comes is, do you have enough faith to bring your friends to Jesus? Do you have enough faith to get get your friend who's laying there on that bed paralyzed from whatever reason? You don't even know all the things that go into it, but do you have enough faith to bring that person to Christ? And then secondly, goes along with the first question, that when you bring your friend to Jesus, do you have enough faith to believe that he can heal them? They they, they wouldn't have gone to all this effort and all this trouble. Property damage. Somebody's upset when you cut a hole in their roof, right? 
They wouldn't have gone to all that trouble if they did not believe that Jesus could do what he said he could do. Do you and I have enough faith to believe that he can do that for the people in our lives? And then thirdly, do you believe that a seed planted, even with bad motives, can grow in Christ? What I mean by this is, for this man, Lord on the mat, what did he want? He wanted to walk, right? He wasn't concerned about spiritual stuff and, and going to church and getting to know Jesus better. The dude wanted to walk. His legs didn't work. His motives might not have been all perfect. And yet, do we believe that when we bring someone to Jesus, even if their motives aren't all right, even if they've just got some kind of deal going on in their life that they want fixed, that, that Christ is big enough to even grow it in bad soil. And I will tell you uh, that I am so thankful for people in my life that continued to plant seed and plant seed and plant seed over and over again when they saw absolutely no sign of growth. None whatsoever. Uh, for me at least, I'm living proof that even in bad soil, even with bad motives, do not lose faith with continuing to plant seed in lives of people around you because you'd be amazed at what could grow out of it someday. We had dear friends here in October, uh, Phil and Brenda Bogier, uh, Bogey and Brenda. Some of you might know them from when they were at Salisbury. And they came in October. And I will tell you that they are examples of people that over and over again in our early and mid-20s planted seed and planted seed and never asked a single thing from us. And we were tore up from the floor up and they never mentioned it. And yet they continued to invest and invest and invest. And they saw squat for 15 years. They saw nothing. And yet they got to sit here on October the 18th uh, through a church service at Woodlawn Chapel that in part was because they never quit planting seeds. And so I just want to encourage you in that. That's what these friends uh, did for this paralyzed man. Now then, in verse 5, Jesus asks a question himself. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and walk? Now that's an interesting question, because we, we would say, at least I would say, it's actually easier to say your sins are forgiven. You know why? Because nobody can see if your sins are forgiven or not. It's not obvious to everyone in the room that your sins are forgiven or not forgiven because we can't see into another man's heart. But it's really obvious if I lay hands on you and say, arise and walk, and you flop off the bed face first, it's pretty obvious. I didn't know what I was doing. So what Jesus is asking is a good question. This is a big hang-up for the Pharisees, and yet it's far easier to just say your sins are forgiven than it is rise, stand up, and walk. And yet for Jesus, notice that even after this unbelievable miracle, and this is what I was mentioning in the previous slide, look who in verse 8 is glorified. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified, not Jesus, they glorified God. Over and over and over again, as Jesus is performing miracles throughout his life, he is always pointing the glory back to God. And that is one way you will know for sure if someone is doing things for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. Where are they pointing the glory back to? It's to God be the glory. We had dear friends who uh, just yesterday got to bring their young son who found out he had leukemia 16 days ago. 
They got to bring him back from Barnes for the first time in 16 days, and they put it on the book of face. And you know what? I saw over and over and over again, glory be to God. God gets the glory. That's when we know that it's aimed and pointed in the right direction is when God gets the glory. Now then continuing to verse 9, we see the calling of Matthew the tax collector. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. Now, again, in the synoptic account in Luke 5, he, he records this same incident where Matthew is called to follow Jesus. But what, uh, what Luke does is he gives us additional information. What we find out there is that Matthew's uh, given name, his birth name was actually Levi. He was Levi the tax collector. Now, that's interesting because, and I covered this in the intro, so if you want more on the topic, you can listen to the first uh, service message. But as uh, what we see from the name of Levi, what we can find is that his parents would have aspired for him to have been a priest. Levi was the tribe of the priests, right? So they named their son with an idea that he was going to someday be a preacher. He was going to someday serve the Lord in this way, and yet what he became was instead a tax collector. The biggest sellout for the nation of Israel of all time. He was actually collecting taxes from his own people, extorting them in fact. So what the Romans would do is they would employ someone uh, of the same Jewish faith, the same Jewish lineage to collect taxes from their own people. And as long as they got their taxes collected, they didn't care how much you added to the top of it. And so for a Jewish tax collector, he would simply, hey, you owe me an extra 10, an extra 100, extra 1,000 on top of your taxes. And so what you find is throughout history, tax collectors were very, very wealthy. They were extremely successful, and they were also very, very hated by their own people. In fact, Matthew would have been unable to even worship in the synagogue, otherwise they might have killed him right there on the spot. So this is the life that Matthew chose to lead. And what we see in Luke's account is, uh, what we see is and, uh, Jesus called Levi the tax collector. But what we see in Matthew's account is as Jesus passed from there, he saw a man. He didn't see a tax collector. He saw a man. Completely different than what the world saw out of him. And then he called him Matthew. He changed his name from Levi, from all this past life of regret and never meeting up to your parents' expectations and instead pursuing success and power and money. He said, you are Matiyahu in Hebrew, which means gift of Yahweh. <laughs> gift of God. Can you imagine saying that about your local IRS agent? Anybody else feel that way? You know what you are, Mr. IRS man? You're a gift from God. So thankful for you. No. This is what Jesus says, though. And so in Luke 5, 28, what we see is he left all, meaning he left money, he left success, he left power. He left all these things immediately to follow Jesus. And then what does he do after that? He throws himself a big old Jesus party. Right? You can imagine being Matthew's friends that come along 
And you're used to going to Matthew's house and having parties. You're not used to him inviting Jesus there. That's a way different kind of party. And you know Matthew didn't give him any kind of heads up on this deal. He just said, hey, come on over to my house tonight for cards. Oh, by the way, Jesus is going to be there. He didn't say that. So you can imagine their surprise when they got there. And here's Jesus. And verse 10, now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Matthew knew and understood that as he came to know Christ, that his influence with this group at least was only going to last so long. And he was going to take full advantage of it. He knew that there was only so much time that these guys were going to let him in the door and listen to him. And so he throws a Jesus party and he has him there at the very table with them and many tax collectors and sinners came in and sat down and they ate together. Do you realize that if you want to minister to people in your life as a sidebar, and I know it's COVID and you can't have people over and you can't touch them or look at them or smell them, all these horrible things might happen. I know that. But when this thing's done... One of the most effective ways you can minister to people around you is eat with them. Have them in and have a meal. There's something that happens and takes place when you eat with one another. There's an intimate kind of a relationship. And I'm not talking about like creepy intimacy, so get your minds right, man. I'm talking about an intimate relationship that happens when you take in the same thing that they take in. You ingest it. You digest it. You're you're sharing this experience with one another. That's the reason why Jesus was constantly eating with people. He knew this and understood this. And so if you want to reach people, the best way to do it is through a meal. Verse 11 And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You realize that sinners make religious people nervous. It gets them all hung up. What in the world are you doing with these sinners? How dare you eat with them? Don't you know they're going to defile you in some way? As we grow in Christ, we have got to be mature enough to hang out with sinners. If we're not, we're just going to be in some kind of echo chamber, listen to ourselves over and over again. There will be no effective outreach for the church if we only hang out with one another. Hanging out with one another is wonderful. We should definitely do that. It's wonderful. Iron sharpens iron. and We can come alongside each other, but yet there is no outreach if we do not reach sinners. Verse 12, And when Jesus heard that, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus level sets them right there. Look, the the, the well, the people that are doing well are not going to the doctor, guys. They're They're going about their business. It's those who are sick that need a doctor. And so as we are called to go out into the world as a church, Let me just tell you, we are called to go be paramedics, not police. So often we arrive on the the scene of a crime, and what's the first thing we want to do? We want to flip out the notebook and start taking notes. What exactly went wrong? What happened? Who did it? We're like playing Clue. Who done it? Maybe it was Professor Plum with the candlestick in the dining room. I don't know. But here's the thing. The people that are bleeding to death, they don't care because they're bleeding to death. Jesus' point is, 
Get a bandage on the thing. Apply pressure. The sick don't need police investigating the crime scene. They need paramedics. So that's a reminder for us. And then in verse 13, he says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So Jesus tells these men in verse 13, go and learn. This, by the way, is sanctified sarcasm. So if you ever think God doesn't have a sense of humor, he does. It's called sanctified sarcasm because he's way more holy than I am. But he tells people who are educated, who learn for a living, go and learn. And then he goes to the Old Testament. He goes to Hosea 6, verse 6. But before we get there, I want to tell you that only three times in the New Testament does Jesus say, go and learn something. So if Jesus is going to tell us, go and learn, uh, it's probably important. We should probably go learn it. So these are the three things that he tells his followers to go and learn. Uh, The first one he says, well, the first one we'll cover here in a minute. The second one he says is in Matthew 11. He tells them to go and learn me. Go and learn me. And this uh, uh, section we'll be at here in a few weeks, but he's talking specifically about rest and what I provide for you. That, that while you're struggling through this life, I want to take on a part of your burden. I'm not going to take all the burden away, but I'm going to make it light and easy. I'm going to do it with you. Go and learn me, is what he says in Matthew 11. And then in Luke 21, he says, go and learn of the fig tree. Now, we could go down a crazy rabbit trail right here, which I'm not going to do, but I'm going to tell you briefly that the fig tree is dealing with the end times. Jesus is saying, pay attention to the world around you. Pay attention to the fig tree, which actually always speaks of Israel throughout Scripture. So pay attention to the leaves. Look at what the season is, and then you'll know if I'm getting close based on how the fig tree looks. Then in this spot, the first place he says go and learn, again he's referring to Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. All these Bible students would have known this. He says go and learn mercy, for this is what Hosea says from the mouth of God, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And now these men were educated and they knew something about sacrifice. They would oftentimes fast twice a week. They would pray multiple times a day, especially out in public. They want to make sure it was known that they knew how to pray. On the outside, they had it going on. And yet what Jesus is saying is, without mercy, you're wasting your time. Now, this is different from grace. Here's an acronym that you can write down about grace. Grace, you remember, is how we actually come to salvation. It's by grace through faith that we are saved. And grace means God's riches at Christ's expense. It is unmerited favor. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You can't sacrifice enough. You can't work hard enough to earn grace. And yet mercy is different. Mercy means uh, not getting what I do deserve. So if grace means getting what I don't deserve, mercy means not getting what I do deserve, which for each of us in this room means hell, death, and eternal damnation. So that's a pretty good thing to avoid, I think. He's saying, I I desire for you to have mercy. And this is coming from the mouth of the Lord who is looking to be merciful in our lives. So by grace we're saved, but by mercy we're called to interact with one another. But the question always comes back, 
What happens when my grace that I give out on people gets trampled? I give grace in a situation and yet they stomp on me. What am I supposed to do? And what Jesus says is give mercy. <laughs> Don't give them what they deserve. Everything in my flesh tells me to give them what they deserve. I'm ready to go take a pound of flesh. I'm from Clark County. We don't mess around down there, right? So that's, that's the way many of us were raised. And yet what Jesus is saying is, give them mercy. And here's the last thing I'll mention on that. It's that grace and mercy have to come with a lack of expectation. And that's oftentimes our hang-up, is that we give out the grace or we give out a little bit of mercy here or there, but boy, we attach an expectation to it in every relationship we have in our life. And I just finished a leadership book. It's called The 100-0 Principle. And what it is, it's that we are to give 100% in a relationship and we're to expect zero in return. And if we do that, we won't be disappointed. I've been telling Angela for years, if you just lower your expectations, I'm not going to disappoint you, honey. Just get them down a notch. Your problem is you don't have them lowered down nearly enough. Now, that's not in the Bible at all, but that's in the BAV, Brock Ashley Version, right there. But this is how we are to interact with others. If we lower our expectations and expect nothing in return, knowing that Christ is the example, he gave everything. And what did he get in return? except scars and a loss of blood and removed himself from a position of glory and honor and praise for you and me. Praise the Lord that he did it too. Now continuing in verse 14, And when the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often and your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will be coming when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast. Now these people, these disciples that are coming to Jesus, these are disciples of John. That's not John the Apostle, but John the Baptist. So they have come, and if you remember back, I believe in chapter 4, John the Baptist is actually in jail. So he's been imprisoned by Herod, uh, sentenced to die, and so they're, they're coming to Jesus looking for some answers. And what scene do they walk onto? But they walk onto him eating, hanging out, laughing with a bunch of sinners. And so they have this question. You can probably understand their, their hearts are broken for their friend who's in jail. And they say, why do we and the Pharisees, note with me that John the Baptist followers never agree with anything with the Pharisees uh, except they, they wonder what Jesus is up to with the Pharisees. That's the only thing they can agree upon is they're curious about what in the world is Jesus up to. So they come and they say, look, look, here we are. We fast often. We pray is what he says also in Luke uh, chapter 5. We pray often. We fast often. And yet, look at your people. You're not fasting. You're having yourself a big old Jesus party. You're having fun. How is it possible for you to have a good time with Jesus? Don't we have to always be sad and sullen and unhappy to be a Christian? No, it turns out. That's not at all how we have to be. In fact, what Jesus promises us is joy. Eternal joy. That's a fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love's the fruit. And when you bite into the fruit, it tastes like 
first joy, then love, then peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. That's what the fruit tastes like. But the first thing listed is joy. And so, this is what Jesus is trying to address in the lives of these people. And then he goes on to give them an example. He says, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as they're with the bridegroom? But the days will be coming when the bridegroom will be taken away, and then they will fast. And so he, he points them back to an analogy on purpose uh, because we see that in John chapter 3, verse 28. This is actually what John the Baptist says. Remember, these guys were followers of John the Baptist. In verse 28, he says, You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ. People were coming to John the Baptist trying to make him to be the Messiah. He says, I am not the Christ. I am not the anointed one, but I have been sent before him. Verse 29, he who, has, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. So what's John saying? He says, look, I'm not the bride or the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bride. I'm here to celebrate with the bride. Which leads us to the question, who's the bride? Good news, men. You're the bride and women. We're a bride. We're the bride of Christ. And so as people are welcomed in as fellow brides of Christ... What are we to do? But we're to be filled with great joy. Remember what just took place for Matthew. He just came to know Jesus. There's a Jesus party. No one's going to want to come to know Jesus if we're always looking so sad all the time. It's supposed to be a party. Get excited about these things. That's what Jesus is trying to share, that nobody wants to come to a boring wedding, right? You all probably been to boring weddings. It's awful. Somebody cut the cake quick. This is no fun. But Jesus is saying, I want to throw a fun wedding, an exciting one. We are enjoy one another's company. Now, this example that Jesus gives, it's indicative of our relationship with Him. That right now, as the bride of Christ, we are waiting on His return. What's He say? The, bride, the bridegroom will be taken, and we're to wait for His return. And as we are to wait for His return, there should be an excitement and anticipation that's built up. This is how Jewish weddings would go. The bride would actually wait for her man to come back and get her. And you know what he was doing? He was at his father's house preparing a room. Does that sound at all familiar to what Jesus is saying? I'm at my father's house preparing a room for you, and if I prepare a room, then I'm going to come back and get you. And so the eager anticipation here is for the rapture of the church to happen. We're to have our eyes set on Him, fixed on Him, being ready, prepared with, with joy. We're to cry out whenever we think He's coming near. It was an exciting time. And yet, what happens is people with legalistic views, they want to come around and they want to question Jesus. They want to put Jesus in a box. And oftentimes, this is what legalism does. Legalism gets upset by joy, by happiness, by new Christians, young believers coming into the church. This is the danger that happens with religion. And by the way, Jesus was never looking for religion. Do you understand that? He was always looking for relationship. That's what He was after from the very get-go. 
He wasn't looking for rules and regulations. But before we get too far in thinking all rules must go, I'm going to turn quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as Paul addresses this in the Corinthian church because what he knew about them is the Corinthians were a lot like us. They loved a good party. If you wanted to go have a good time at church, the Corinthians were your people. Right? Might have had some sin issues, but they knew how to have some fun. Now, they did get drunk in the communion line, and Paul had to question them about it a little bit. But they knew how to have a good time, which is why Paul addresses them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Not all things build up. And so that's a cautionary tale as we have liberty in Christ. We have the ability to do lots of different things and interact in lots of different ways, but the, the litmus test to run it through is, is it edifying? Is it uplifting? Does it build me up in any way, shape, or form? And if it doesn't, then it's not helpful to me in my life. And so that's an important question that we must ask as we're having liberty in Jesus. We can feel free to have a good time in Christ. Now then, where he ends this section is in verse uh, 16. He says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away and for, the, for the garment, and the tear is made worse. Verse 17, Nor do we put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into w- new wineskins, and both are preserved. And so Jesus gives two different examples, both to drive home the same point. Remember, Matthew is a gospel of twos. Over and over again, he gives us two examples of things because in Jewish law and custom, you had to have two witnesses to prove something was true. And so he gives us two different examples. The first is of the unshrunk cloth, uh, putting it on a garment. So if you take an unshrunk piece of fabric and you put it on your Levi's with the hole in them, uh, and it hasn't been shrunk, what happens when the jeans shrink, but the cloth tears away and the hole's actually made worse than what it was the first time. And then secondly, he uses the example of wine and wineskins. Now in Jesus' time, uh, what they would do with wine after they had it first crushed is they would take an animal skin, usually a stomach or some kind of lining, something that's uh, pliable or flexible. I gave you a picture up here so you can get an idea of what that looked like. And they would sew up all the holes and they would uh, pour the new wine into it. Now, as wine ferments, you probably know uh, gases are created. And so it needs to have room to be able to expand. Now, Jesus' point is uh, that no one would take new wine and put it into an old wineskin. Now, some of you guys are probably tempted at times, like, you've got this wineskin, it's already made, I'm a little cheap, I don't want to go out and kill another sheep, and so I want to just take this old one and reuse it. Surely it's pliable enough. And what would happen is they would take the new wine and pour it into the old wineskin, and as those gases would begin to generate, a, a hole would spring. A leak would happen. And the next thing you know, the entire wineskin would actually burst, and all that effort, all that new wine would actually dump all over the ground. What the Apostle Paul says about us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, it's that we are new creations in Christ. That when you come to know Jesus, you become a new wineskin, ready to have new wine 
poured in to each of you. Now that new wine has room then to, to move around and, and expand. Remember, throughout the Bible, wine is a picture of joy. What Jesus is doing is He is pouring new found joy into us, and we expand, and yet what we find is in the world, it's an old wineskin. Now the world loves the new wine. Because the new wine promises all the things we talked about from Galatians, right? Joy and peace and patience. And the world goes, those are good things. Even people that don't believe Jesus go, those are are really good things for me to have in my life. The problem is the (laughs) wineskin. I don't know that I want to be a new creation. I don't know that I want Jesus. Jesus is always the issue whenever we get into this. The world loves the concepts, uh, don't necessarily like the new wineskin. Religion can be a lot the same way. The traditions, the rules, the regulations, all the ways that, that it must be for church to be able to operate. Judaism was like this. They were so rigid in their rules and their regulations that when Jesus came with the new wine, they had no room to expand. They had no room to grow. What takes place is they burst. They explode. They can't hold it in. Uh, complete disasters, churches fall apart because they were not willing to be flexible as the new wine was introduced. Now for you and I, here's the thing. We can't be satisfied with just being a new wineskin every now and again. We have to continually be being regenerated as new wineskins over and over and over again because here's the other thing that happens with wine. As it's poured in, you know what settles down at the bottom? The dirt, the debris, the dregs, they would call it. And so the only way to get rid of the dregs was to take the wine and pour it into another wineskin. And so in Jeremiah 48.11, he's talking about Moab in this spot. But what he's saying, what God's saying is, Moab was never poured from vessel to vessel. They settled in their spot. They let things get comfortable. And so what happens when you open the valve stem? To get a nice drink of wine, uh, you get a big old mouthful of dirt. You get all the crud that comes out. What Jesus is saying is you have to be poured from vessel to vessel to vessel. And sometimes uh, this hurts. And sometimes it's scary. And sometimes we just flat don't feel like having a new wine skin today, Lord. I like the old skin. I'm kind of stretched out. I don't know if I can take much more stretching, in fact. But the thing is, as we get restricted and we're not pliable, we're no longer able to take any new wine. We can't take on any more joy or any new and fresh joy because we've let ourselves be settled. And so I want to encourage you today that as you grow in Christ, in Luke's account, he, he told them in Luke 5.39, he says that any of those who have drunk the old wine will not immediately like the new wine. But it doesn't mean you can't enjoy it ever. It just means you have to build up the taste for it, right? And so this is the the call of Jesus, to continually be refreshing ourselves, poured from vessel to vessel to vessel. And what we need is new, fresh blood, fresh people coming in, fresh ideas. New young Christians are excited. Because they've got new wine. They're all full of new wine. They're so excited to get to know the Word of God. I got a text message from my pastor in Farmington 
yesterday about a, a guy that just came to Christ in the church, and he wrote him a message. He said, I'm so excited to go through Isaiah with you. They're, they're in Isaiah 56 or 7 right now, so they've, they've journeyed through the book nearly to the end. And, and, and this guy said, I'm also reading up on Revelation. And he's a little rough around the edges, as new Christians can be. But he says, I'm reading through the book of Revelation. Man, for all those people that don't believe in Jesus, that's going to be some really awful blank. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> not exactly what he expected to get on the text. But you know what? The guy's not wrong. Like, read Revelation. That's some pretty awful blank in there. Like, you want to believe in Jesus. So, so theologically, he was correct. Did he need some edges knocked off? Absolutely. But you know what? You need some new wine every now and again to remind you there's some pretty awful stuff in there. There's a lot of people we love and we care about, and we don't want them to go through that. We want them to miss all the awful stuff. We want them to get to enjoy the good stuff, to get to enjoy the fresh wine of Jesus, to expand our joy continually, increasingly. And so, Heavenly Father, thank you so much. First of all, just for giving us the opportunity to be new wineskins, Lord. We, we certainly do not deserve that. So I want to praise you, Father, openly for being patient, for being long-suffering with these old wineskins that we want to continually try to pour you into and then we can't figure out why we spring a leak. Lord, thank you for being patient with us. Father, thank you for being so willing to continually give wine in abundance, joy in abundance. Thank you for this season which brings about so much joy for so many. And yet for others, it's not as joyful. So Father, please help us to be able to cry with those who need to be mourned with and to laugh with those who need to be laughed with, to know that you are a mixture of both not afraid to shed a tear, and yet not afraid to look, throw your head back and just laugh. Thank you, Father, for new life. And we praise you for the new life that's about to walk in this door. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.